Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for May 30th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll be talking about what we've been watching, what we've been doing in everything in Water Cooler Monday, which has been delayed uh, from Memorial Day. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is the whole team, including Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And writers, Kwaitran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, let's uh, let's just get into it, and let's uh, talk about uh, what we've been doing. I uh, I just got back from a trip to Orlando, Florida, my third in probably two months now, uh, which is kind of strange. Uh, I was there for a wedding of uh, two of my friends, uh, uh, John and Vanessa, um, it was a uh, fantastic uh, wedding. They they are both real geeks. <laughs> I, th- I think it's probably the, the the best way to put it. And uh, you know, I've been to a lot of weddings recently, and uh, actually throughout my life, because uh, before uh, you know doing slash film, I was a videographer, and I used to do weddings, uh, you know, videotape weddings for a living, which uh, sucked. You know, I've seen a lot of weddings. I've seen a lot of formal weddings. I guess what I'm about to say, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, casting a shadow on anybody, but like, um. 
to me, formal weddings are very boring. And, um, and it seems like a lot of people and even a lot of people I know have weddings and, and like the wedding doesn't represent them. Maybe they're doing it for like their parents or whatever reason. It, it was refreshing to be at this wedding where uh, John and Vanessa are both like, you know, they have a lot of fandoms. When when you walked into the wedding uh, and got your table assignment, you were uh, sorted into a house from Harry Potter and given a pin that you had to wear, uh, and they were sorted by uh, by by the the couple. And um, uh, so yeah, it, it was it was very geeky. It was uh, the ceremony. I think was like only ten minutes long. It was uh, wonderful. The wedding v- vows involved uh, him uh, vowing to visit uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at least twice a year, and hit her seeing every Marvel movie with him, um, which I thought was just great. Uh, their wedding rings. She has an R two D two wedding ring, and he his wedding ring is like a black. Uh, uh, Batman utility belt from uh, the Nolan movies. Uh, it, it was oh no, it was just fantastic. They had the flux capacitors playing as their band. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you are aware of the flux capacitors, but they are uh, one of the best cover bands. I think voted on like by multiple newspapers. Uh, but they they uh, dress as you know Marty and Doc, and uh, you know they have a Back to the Future theme, but they play mostly 80s and 90s. Uh, mostly 80s music. Uh, they're fantastic, uh, but I don't know. It was it was just a. It was cool to uh, to be at a wedding that was so representative of these two people, and not like you know they weren't doing it for other people; they were doing it for themselves. And, and another cool thing about this wedding too is uh uh, like you know I I go to a lot of weddings and it's a lot, usually a lot of family and a lot of like you know small talk, and you don't usually get to connect with the people you're there with. Um, and at this wedding, I don't know, it was, it was just a lot of cool people in one place. And I feel like I made some good friends. It's a lot of, uh, like-minded people that like the same kind of things. It, it was just, I don't know. It was a refreshing wedding. It was, uh, uh, Vanessa who writes occasionally for our site, uh, was published in the LA times this weekend, uh, an article called, uh, how, R2-D2 helped me find love. And it's basically about how uh, she she, uh, she kind of found herself and, uh, you know, by embracing her geek, geekdom. I will link that in the show notes. It's, it's a wonderful piece. And I, I'm so happy for John and Vanessa. They are, they are uh, good friends now. And uh, it was uh, fantastic to be there. Uh, but while I was there, of course, if I was in Florida, I had to make a trip to the theme parks and I chose me and Ketra chose to go to Epcot because it was the last weekend of their flower and garden festival, which sounds boring, but really it's an excuse to have like a bunch of food and, and drinks around their uh, world showcase pavilion. Uh, I'd never been at the garden festival. I've been at the food and wine festival. Uh, food's not as good at the food and garden festival, I think. Um, and, uh, the uh, not to take up too much time, but I I think I'm quickly reali- realizing that either I'm getting too old or I'm too out of shape to do like the all day at a theme park thing. Like I have an annual pass in in uh, California to the Disney parks and to the Universal parks. Um, and you know when you have an annual pass, usually your visits to the park are much different 
than a normal person's uh, visits park. You usually will go there for, you know, a few hours, half day, grab some food, go on a couple rides. But uh, going to Epcot and, you know, making that walk around the world and, you know, trying to do as many rides as possible, like by 4 p.m., I was like, I don't know, I was just pooped. Uh, (laughs) Jacob, do you have this problem? Are you? Well, generally, whenever I've done theme parks, uh, me and my family or whoever I'm with, I've always built breaks into our days. We arrive before opening. We, we go until about noon or one. And then we uh, make an escape. We go grab lunch off property. We go back to a hotel. We spend a few hours away and rest and relax and then come back and finish the evening there. So uh, it's a case where I think exhaustion is just part of the theme park experience. I think you try to do everything all at once in one day. You're going to fry yourself out. So I think the most important thing to do, it's not necessarily an age thing or in shape thing. It's just a build breaks in experience so you can better appreciate and come back. But I don't know if this was possible for you at this time since it was, you know, just a one off <laughs> trip. That's, yeah. I always feel that's the best way to um, do Disney World is to make sure you program trips and your, uh, breaks into your schedule. I mean, I think you're right, but I used to be able to do it without the breaks. So I feel like... Uh... I don't know. My body is breaking or something. Uh, but w- what have you guys been doing? Uh, HD, what have you been up to? So this weekend was Memorial Day weekend, and I went with my family to Bethany Beach, where my aunt actually has a beach house. And she's owned it for the past about decade now, and we've been kind of frequently using it, all members of my family, to go up every now and then. And we were lucky enough to, enough to not have um, it rented out to other tenants on Memorial Day weekend. So we just spent the, it was me, my mom, and my dad, and my uh, aunt and uncle, and we just spent the weekend there. It was very chill. Uh, went to the outlets, uh, stayed, slept at the beach. That's that's really my only goal when I go to the beach is just to find some shade and then, like, fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, shade and a beach are not, uh, you know, things I, I would assume go together. They aren't, but, well, it was a little bit difficult this time because we have an umbrella, but it was very windy this weekend. So my umbrella kept flying away into the poor people who were in front of me. So I felt really bad about that. Um, but it was it was a nice time. It was very relaxing, sort of two, two and a half day getaway. Uh, the traffic coming back was horrible just because Memorial Day weekend on, on Monday is just the worst. But it was a lot of fun, and I hadn't been there in a, a couple years. I used to go there a lot as a kid. So I had a lot of like childhood memories. We used to have bikes there and like bike around, get ice cream and everything like that. It was very nostalgic for me. I actually even had a friend um, from college who lived there for a couple years uh, working at a local outlet. And uh, she, although she has some horror stories because she had to live there throughout the year and during the winter becomes a ghost town essentially. And she had some very strange stories about like birds flying into her car and like rooming with a bunch of Russian girls who she wasn't sure exactly why they were there. So, but otherwise Bethany beach is a really nice relaxing beach in Delaware, a little bit off of Rehoboth, which is the more popular destination. So it's a little less crowded and a lot of fun. Well, while you were uh, relaxing, Chris was busy working. Chris, what were you up to? Um, I went to uh, I went to uh, New York, uh, New York City, to be clear, not just New York State, um, to uh, the Ocean's 8 press day, um, which is really my first time ever doing a big uh, like junket like this. I, I've done interviews before in the past with with filmmakers, but this was the 
the whole the whole shebang where it, it was an all day thing where I had to I, I drove up to New York um the 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 press day the the junket was at the Met which plays a part in the film and it it, uh, it featured uh, the bulk of the cast uh, Kate Blanchett Anne Hathaway um, Mindy Kaling you know all, all those people everyone except Helena Bonham Carter and Rihanna w- was there basically and uh, you know it was it was it was fun it was you know it was a little exhausting just because like I said it was an all day thing but. It was very just. It was very cool to just be in the same room with Kate Blanchett. Basically, that's that's really all I cared about, <laughs> and I was I was very excited about that. And it, it's a little surreal because you know you, you see these people in films all the time, and then just to sit there and watch them just casually stroll out onto the stage and just sit around listening to. Uh, mostly, you know, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but boy, were the questions very, very dull. But they they all did a, a yeah, good job. You, you, you would think, you know, you go to uh, movie Q&As after a screening and like those are like the worst. But you'd think like with professionals in a in a roundtable setting that they would, the, the level of questions would be much higher. And it is a little bit higher, but not much higher. It's it's weird because another thing I learned from this is that no one listens to anyone because before they opened it up to press questions, they had a moderator there and the moderator had a bunch of already written out questions that he asked them. And after that was done, they opened it up to the press and pretty much everyone, you know, in the in in the crowd asked more or less the same exact questions. It's like, you know, you already got this. You don't need to ask it again. But I guess they just want to uh, hear themselves talk and that's what happened and then afterwards i went back um to a a a fancy hotel that was uh just happened to be across the street from trump tower which kind of bummed me out but uh i was there to interview the the director gary ross and that was a little surreal too because uh i I operate out of philadelphia and while i've done you know uh, one-on-one interviews here in philly with with filmmakers they're very uh they don't pull out all the stops, I guess. I'll put it like that, where it's this like you're you're in these sort of rundown hotels, just waiting <laughs> around. Um, whereas this was, it was you know a, a very. I, I walked into this hotel and there was a bar right in the beginning. It, it looked like it was literally a bar for millionaires. I'm pretty sure they were like lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills in this bar, <laughs> and. Um, uh, then you uh, you go up to this suite and you literally just wait around to get called to your interview and. You know, they they have all this food laid out. Uh, none of this happens at the Philly junk. It's, it's you know, it's literally just go sit in that corner until we call you, and then you'll be ready. <laughs> so it was it was a, it was a cool experience. Well, they're spending all the money on travel, probably, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- that sounds very much like the experience that we have in LA with junkets. Uh, but let's uh, let's go to Jacob, who has uh, been battling a problem. Yes, well, all of you are going on fancy adventures in the beaches and having fun over Memorial Day weekend. I was walking out of my garage when there was a giant spider web in the corner um, of the room. And I walked over, and I leaned in toward the giant black spider, and I saw the red hourglass on it, and my bowels moved. So <laughs> it was a black widow spider, and it was living in my garage. And I was for- I'm fortunate and smart enough to have a pest control service that I pay every other month who comes out the spray whenever I need them to and on a regular basis. So I called up and said, please send someone over to kill this poisonous spider before it kills me or my dogs. Uh, so they did. And it was, it was, it was a fun time because my incredibly gay pest control guy came out, had a great, <laughs> had, a, had a great time spraying the spider, gleefully asked to smash with a shovel. 
and was so excited he can go back to to work and tell everybody he killed a black widow spider. Uh, it was really surreal. Like he was as enthralled as I was terrified. And he did some uh, searching, found the body of the black widow's mate uh, under under the web, and realized, oh yep, they've definitely made it. We need to watch out for babies now. Oh, you no. have a full treatment done on Monday. Uh, so I, I went to the store, bought a bunch of spider spray, and spent the weekend finding lots of black widow eggs all over my garage. <laughs> <laughs> spraying them with spider spray and uh, keeping my dogs away from them and just being generally terrified. Uh, person around the Monday did treatment of the whole house. And I said, oh, is the problem solved now? And they go, no, this is something you deal with now. <laughs> so apparently uh, spiders wow. are very, very common in my area of Austin uh, and, uh, and and especially common in new builds. My house is only about seven months old. And... I know I spoke to a bunch of friends who recently had houses built, and they all said, yep, I got rats, or I got spiders, or I got this, I got cockroaches, I got this vermin. And and in some ways, I feel lucky, because if I had rats or mice, they'd be in my house, and that would just be a nightmare. This way, even though rats can't kill me like a black widow can, the black widow tends to stay in the garage and not bother me unless I get it in its face. So it's an ongoing problem, one I have to deal with for as long as I live in this house. Uh, but at least I know where they are and know how to fight them. And that was my Memorial Day weekend. When are you burning your house down? (laughs) (laughs) Jacob, I have a question. Which would you least prefer to have in your house of the rats, spiders, uh, mice, and cockroaches? I'd least prefer – I'd least mind cockroaches because they're gross and horrible. But I – the worst they can do is crawl on me. And – and that's you know they're and, not gonna and your dogs will probably enough. just eat them. That's bad yeah. enough. That's the worst. <laughs> Cockroaches can't kill me, and mice uh, will, will drill into my walls. And if I, one of my dogs is a terrier, another one's a hound. They're hunting dogs. They were trained to hunt small rodents. If I had rats in my house, I would never hear the end of it. They would be nonstop howling, nonstop yipping. It would but be then you nightmare. don't have to pay for uh, pest control because your dogs would do it for you. Yeah, and you're not <laughs> well, going to. And you're not going to die when a spider crawls into your mouth and lays an egg inside. <laughs> but I pay for press control anyway. Like, like they, they, they spray for everything. So the, look at this way. The Black Widows got in, but them spraying kept the rats out. That's how I'm choosing to look at it. But yeah, it, it's, it's it's been a, a, um, a weird thing because I had a weird sense of guilt when it happened. I talked to my wife about this. Even during my, like, every other day phone call with my mother, um, who I had to speak to regularly, I said, like, you know, I went to some life advice from my mom, which is, you know, something I I think we all do at some point uh, where I said, is it weird to have like feel guilt for like something you can't control for a for like something deadly to be in your home to possibly threaten your, your family, your, you know, my, my cat, my dogs, my wife. And for me to feel like it's my fault, I could have done something. And the answer is no, I couldn't have. But, but that feeling of guilt of not being able to prevent something is apparently very common in new homeowners, very common in uh, newlyweds. I'm, you know, I'm still relatively newlywed. And I guess it's just something I'm growing used to is part of being an adult. I mean, I, uh, I, I turned 30 this year, and it's uh, I'm still not used to the idea of being a homeowner, of being a husband, of being someone who has to have responsibility. And this Black Widow situation really exposed me what it's like to be my age and what it's like to try to be an adult and what it's like to grow up in ways I was not expecting. It was actually kind of a profound and dark and strange weekend for me. Adulting is not always fun. Actually, most of the time it isn't fun. Um, Brad, what have you been up to? I enjoyed Memorial Day weekend by going out on a pontoon boat with some of my friends. Uh, I have a friend who lives in California uh, most of the year, but comes back a couple times a year. 
And he came back during Memorial Day weekend and decided uh, to rent a pontoon boat for a bunch of us to enjoy that since we only see each other uh, a couple times a year. So we went out on the boat. There's a lake nearby where I live uh, in the middle of my town. And it was busy, obviously, because it's Memorial Day, but it was so nice. The water temperature was perfect. It was just cool enough to be refreshing and not totally freezing. Uh, and it was just really nice to get out and just kind of in, enjoy being outside away from my computer screen and just relax and have some drinks and cruise around the lake. How many times did you sing the Lonely Island song? Oh, I actually wish that I would have thought to, to sing it, but I, I didn't. Now I'm just disappointed <laughs> in myself. I am so disappointed what's a, in you. What is a pontoon boat exactly? So a pontoon boat is basically like a platform boat uh that like it basically sits on top of you know two like um metal floating you know objects kind of like this kind of like Ah. the things that that are under like planes that go on water Mm. and and it's a platform with with like seats and stuff on it and it's it's basically like a a small platform party boat it has like a canopy on top to shade and everything so it's it's not quite like a speed boat that's built for you know speed or cruising around the lake it's just meant for you know moving around and just kind of relaxing and is that all you did over the weekend? No. Uh, well, so I also was able to get my hands on something that I've wanted for a while. Uh, one of my favorite pop culture artists is Ape Meets Girl, uh, Kevin M. Wilson. And he recently opened up his own online store at his website. And to have, have a little bit of a, a quote-unquote grand opening for it, he sold some of the uh, artist proofs and some archive prints that have been sitting around. And some of them were more rare prints that have been uh, out of print for a long time that you haven't been able to find unless you want to pay tons of money on eBay. So I was finally able to get my hands on his awesome Wally print that I have wanted because I always see it hanging on your wall, Peter, when I go go to your place in Los Angeles. So I finally got it, uh, and it's arriving sometime this week. Um, It's always been one of my favorite prints of his, and I've ever been able to get my hands on it. It's got tons of cool Pixar Easter eggs in it, and it's just a cute little image of Wally and Eve looking out over the the sunset and the trash heaps. Yeah, I know. I'm looking at it right now. It's beautiful. Like, Google this if you get a chance, guys. It's like a really stunning piece. Yeah, I can't wait to, to, to frame it and hang it up. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how many Easter eggs are on there, but like in the trash, you can find many references to uh, all of Pixar's films up until that point and probably after that point. It's really a great thing. Uh, For uh, this uh, additional water cooler, we decided to break things up and do things differently, uh, breaking up into sections. So the next section actually is what we've been eating. Uh, I'll start this off. Because while I was in Florida, uh, I went to uh, Uno's. Uh, have any of you ever been to Uno's? The yeah, pizzeria? it's like a Chicago pizzeria, Chicago style. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a chain. I think it's mostly on the East Coast. I used to, uh, as a teenager, go to one in uh, my hometown, Natick, Massachusetts. Um, it's not particularly great. Uh, they claim to be the people that created the, the deep, deep dish pizza, but it's actually kind of like uh, one of those things where like they started the deep dish pizza like restaurant, and the person that started it, its father created a recipe that was older than the first one that anybody knows of. So they claim it's the first deep dish pizza. Anyways, it, it, it's regardless of that, uh, Uno's has 
my favorite appetizer of all time, which is this thing called the pizza skins. It is a small uh, – they cook it in like a small deep dish pizza can. They basically um, use pizza crust. They put mashed potatoes in the middle uh, instead of like sauce and stuff. And then on top of the mashed potatoes, they put cheese and uh, – you know, pieces of bacon. So it's basically like a potato skin, but as a pizza. And uh, it's become a tradition every time I go, not every time, but a lot of times when I go back to Florida, I'll, I'll stop by an Uno's if, if we're close and uh, grab some pizza skins. Have, have any of you ever tried the pizza skins? No. No, no but it, it sounds amazing. It, it is fantastic. Uh, at least how I remember it when I was in high school, I think. Uh, it was much larger. It seems like it has been uh, <laughs> minified, maybe in the more health-conscious uh, society. And even looking at the calorie count on the menu, I think it's probably still, you know, on the higher end of things. Like, you know, you look at uh, the Awesome Blossom and how many calories that is. I think that's this is probably around there. Uh, so, uh, but anyways, if you ever get a chance, try it out. Uh, Uno's is not so great. Uh, I'm not recommending Uno's, but uh, but yeah. Pizza skins. Uh, Brad, you always have something interesting that you're uh, consuming. What have, what have you been eating? That's a weird way to phrase that, but yeah, I'll go along with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, so in addition to trying uh, most of the new flavors of Oreos that come out, I'm also kind of like uh, a cereal nerd, and I'm always on the lookout for new flavors they come out with. Um, and there are a couple new things that just uh, hit shelves this month. There's a... Uh, Anilla wafer banana pudding cereal that just came out. Um, Post has been like doing these uh, cookie theme cereals lately. They released like a Chips Ahoy cereal, which is basically just Cookie Crisp but with a brand name slapped on it. Uh, they also have like a Nutter Butter cereal, and then they brought back the Oreo O's, which were available like years ago, and they just now brought them back. And so this is one of the new ones that they brought um, along with golden Oreo O's, which are is you know the golden cookie version of the the chocolate cereal. And then I also picked up uh, chocolate peanut butter pebbles, which is like you know uh, basically a, a Reese's peanut butter puff version of you know, cocoa pebbles. Hmm. And uh, I was a little bit disappointed with the the chocolate peanut butter pebbles or cocoa peanut butter pebbles, whatever you want to say. It doesn't have quite as strong of the like the, the peanut butter chocolate taste as the Reese's peanut butter puffs do like that really tastes like just a, a a good chocolate peanut butter cereal like if you know if you could imagine Reese's uh, cups turned into cereal that has a, a good flavor this it felt kind of weak um, neither the peanut butter taste nor the chocolate taste was really like strong enough to make a good combination for it so I was kind of disappointed in it but the vanilla banana pudding cereal was actually uh, really, really tasty. I, I liked it a lot. I'm one of those people that skips breakfast, but uh, you've gotten me wanting to, you know, go out and buy some cereals. Uh, ben, you've also been uh, eating some interesting stuff. What have you been up to? Yeah, so my wife and I uh, sort of tag-teamed the kitchen this weekend, and we made uh, barbecue brisket, which is from a uh, cookbook based out of the restaurant called Lemonade that's in L.A. Peter, have you ever been there? Yeah, lemonade is fantastic. I don't I, I don't think they serve a brisket normally, right? I think they do. I think it's it's one of their like soup uh, sections. Anyway, it's oh, it's okay. like it's very liquidy, but it's also has tons of huge meat chunks in it. Like I think we put like I, I think it was four pounds of beef or something like that, something crazy like that. Uh, but anyway, we worked on that 
and it turned out really fantastic. We also had green beans out of uh, Chrissy Teigen's uh, Cravings cookbook. My wife is a big fan of that uh, book. And these green beans, like I am a fan of green beans generally, but these I'd never had anything that tasted like these before because they're made basically with um, like sugar water, like sort of they soak <laughs> they soak in sugar water. So the green beans taste sweet at the same time as being you know, like healthy vegetable kind of flavor. So that was sort of a strange combination that I've never experienced, uh, but that was really good as well. And then- So you've successfully think, made it made green vegetables bad for you. Yeah, a little bit, but I'm sure that, I mean, they have to be, yes, yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. <laughs> I think putting them in sugar water must, uh, must make them the, worse. The um, only way to make it worse is to put them in sugar water and then deep fry them. The best <laughs> yeah. vegetables, the natural way to eat vegetables. <laughs> We don't have a deep fryer, so that's not an option for us, But uh, which I guess I'm probably grateful for, or my body is in the long run, even though I'm, I'm sure I would eat all sorts of delicious things that way. But uh, the last thing that we made was this really incredible cornbread. Um, I don't remember exactly where she found this recipe, maybe just Pinterest or something, but um, it was it's basically like uh, just eating vanilla cake, uh, like yellow cake. It's so good. Uh, talking about unhealthy things. I mean, it's it's like, you know, tons of flour and sugar. It's basically like we were talking about it. And, and she said, like, if somebody just cut a cake size piece and put it down in front of her and and didn't tell her what she was about to eat, she would be like, this cake tastes good. Not like, oh, this cake tastes like cornbread. You know, it's <laughs> it's that much. Uh, it's that sweet. So, um, yeah, we have some leftovers that I'm looking forward to destroying the rest of those as soon as we finish wrapping up this uh, this podcast episode. And my wife's cornbread recipe literally calls for half cornbread mix, half um, cake mix. So it's <laughs> very much a thing. And I really That's awesome. I, it is delicious and I enjoy it. And you are and it's it, it works really well because the um, sweet cornbread we can buy with any kind of savory meat or sauce. It's just a great balance. It's really wonderful. Yeah, so we had uh, we'd never had any of these three meal uh, items uh, together, and we decided to just go all in and try three huge things uh, all in one uh, one particular cooking session, and all of them turned out really well, which is sort of surprising. So I was I was happy for that. Okay, let's move on to the what we've been watching section. Um... I'll start off while I was in Florida. I did get to see so a Star Wars story yet again. Uh, I've already talked quite a bit about that on this podcast and on the site, so I won't uh, belabor that. But uh, one of my, uh, I, I do want to say that like I have noticed a trend that recently I'm, I'm going back and re- and seeing movies for multiple times that have uh, big twists or reveals late into the film and enjoying, you know. Uh, Seeing how the audience responds to those things. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, obviously, you know, there's however Infinity War ends, you know, how this ends. Like, I don't know. It's just I I feel like this hasn't been something that has been happening until the summer. Like, I can't think of another uh, group of movies that, like, I have enjoyed going back to the theater. Just uh, I mean, I'm also there for the movie, but uh, I'm uh, enjoying uh, reveling in uh, the reaction from the crowd. But um, the other thing I, I, I saw is I attended uh, David Blaine is doing a live tour. Uh, he came to the Dobie Theater, which is where they hold the Oscars. And as we've talked about, is kind of in a mall. Um, and uh, I got to see him live. I, I had seen him live, uh, I think, a year ago. And it's basically the same kind, same show. But this time, I, as you know, I'm hugely into magic, so I splurged 
on something that I've often made fun of many other people uh, doing, and that is I splurged on uh, meet and greet tickets, which are, you know, insanely priced tickets that allow you to go backstage before the show and uh, meet the, the person that is performing. And usually... Usually the case is like, you know, you pay like $2,000 to go backstage and meet Britney Spears before she performs in Vegas. But essentially you just get to like go and stand next to her, you know, three feet away and take a photo. Uh, and you don't really get any interaction. It's kind of like almost like one of those Comic-Con things where you pay to get a photo with someone. Um, this was a little bit different. Uh, first of all, it wasn't $2,000. <laughs> I wouldn't pay that much money on a uh, on a ticket. Uh, it was many multiples uh, less than that. Um, but uh, it was cool because you got to go backstage and for 15, 20 minutes before the show, David Blaine comes out. He does uh, card tricks for like I think there's probably like 20, 30 people that were there. And uh, he he, you know, did his classic material. But uh, he. um uh, Kitra, uh, my girlfriend, he actually did a trick, uh, with her, like holding his hand. I posted it on Instagram. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, but it was just fantastic to see a guy on that level perform up close and, you know, with tricks that he must have performed, you know, in tens of thousands of times and seeing how, you know, just on the fly he's able to work with the situation of the, the people. Uh, the show itself is amazing. If, if, if you, have a chance to see him live when he comes to town i would recommend doing it he does uh it's about half magic half stunts and uh the 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 stunts he does on on the show like you know he's you know will put an ice pick through his arm he uh regurgitates frogs from his stomach he uh at our show the closing bit was him in a tank of water uh, not breathing, uh, you know, trying to, to stand her as long as he could. And every night on this tour, he's trying to break a previous record uh, on the tour. Um, and when we were there, he I think he it was 10 minutes and 19 seconds. Uh, now, I'll say when I've seen the David Blaine specials, usually the stunts are the least interesting part of it for me. But uh, seeing it live and seeing it knowing that things could go wrong, I think is maybe a bit of the, uh, what makes it so cool, but like seeing it live and actually seeing it unfold in front of your eyes, it's, it's just so tense and so exciting. And, uh, I, I just don't know how this guy is going to do this like this. I think he's doing like 37 cities. It's, it's insane. Uh, the tricks he does are insane. And, uh, he comes out of the, that that uh, water torture cell at the end and does a full like thirty minute Q and A while he's like convulsing and like seems like he needs medical attention, but like you know he's crazy and like you know at our show he like some little kid in the audience that wanted to be a magician he like had him come up on stage and do a magic trick for him in front of the whole you know in front of the Dolby Theater. It was just a uh, I don't know it was it was a great show. And uh, I, I now have a picture with David Blaine, which is uh, fantastic. It can go on my magic uh, wall. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, what were you gonna say? Oh, I just want to say uh, I'm wondering if, since you're doing a lot of magic these days, you're hanging around a lot of magicians, you go to Magic Castle all the time. 
Like when you watch these shows, do you search for how they're done? Is, is there is has the appeal changed? Is it no longer wow, this is amazing? To oh, I wonder how he does that, and actually like critically thinking about that as a as like the same way you watch a movie, wondering how they make a movie happen. I, I'm wondering if that's changed for you at all. Huh. Um, I think I've always been about that. I've always uh, kind of trying to figure things out. Um, I. I don't know. I nowadays, like I, I would say, I when, when I go see a magic show, I know eighty-five to ninety percent of how things are done, and it's me enjoying the particular presentation and the artistic, uh, you know, how how the things presented by the performer, and uh, th- there's certain aspects that you can appreciate, and even you know. Uh, Going to the Magic Castle every week, you see some of the same tricks being done over and over again, but people do the same tricks in different ways. And it's, I mean, I guess I I would relate it to the same way as, like, you know, if you love romantic comedies, you know, romantic comedies usually use the same kind of formula and tropes, uh, but they're done in different ways. And sometimes they are elevated to a form of art, uh, you know, in the way that, like, I guess, uh, Nora Ephron or you know whoever does it uh and sometimes it's uh you know stupid and silly but yeah um but seeing someone like david blaine who is a master at these things he he's a a living legend in in this field it's 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 amazing i would highly recommend it i know tickets are pretty expensive i think the the lowest price ticket you can get is like around 100 bucks but uh if he's coming to your neck of the woods i would i would recommend it um jacob what have you been up to well, I watched two things I would like to talk about. The first of which I revisited Rob Reiner's Misery for the first time in years. And I'm a big fan of the Stephen King novel it's based on. It's one of my favorite uh, King works. And the movie makes some choices that I'm not always on board with. It really sands down some of the book's rougher edges. Like there's some violent moments in the book that are toned down. The claustrophobia and the, the tension of the book, which is all in one location, is sort of released a bit by the movie because the movie cuts around outside of the house where the action takes place. Uh, but it's such a confident, like intense, suspenseful movie. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about a a uh, writer who's in a car accident and ends up being held hostage with two broken legs in the home of his number one fan. Uh, number one fan in quotation marks because she's a psychopath who um, won't let him leave, won't let him call anybody, and essentially holds him prisoner, forces him to write another, another book just for her. And uh, Kathy Bates won an Oscar for, for playing Annie Wilkes, the number one fan. And James Caan uh, plays the writer, Paul Sheldon. And uh, Bates has won all his acclaim over the years, and rightfully so. It's his amazing performance. And watching again, I was impressed by Caan, who, what I love about the book and about the movie is that Paul Sheldon makes all the right survival choices. He, he, he recognizes he's in a bad situation, and because he's alone with one person, he often can't speak. Uh, what's on his mind, but in in Can's performance, you can see him making choices. You can see him watching the psychopath and choosing not to react or choosing how to react and choosing when to be quiet, when to speak up. And watching the interplay between these two is amazing. And Rob Reiner is such a at the at the time was such a confident director that uh, even though it's not as not as harsh or as personal as the book was, it's such an entertaining like gnarly little movie, and it re- it's really great and. Annie Wilkes remains such a great portrait of fandom gone wrong, even today, I think. Yeah, and I would say that it's still, like, for a movie that's, what, like, probably 20, 30 years old at this point? 
pushing 30 yeah uh it it still uh plays pretty well i showed it to kitra like i think a year ago she had never seen it and it it, it is uh you know it's not one of those movies you know you, you'll revisit a lot of classic movies and they feel like very dated and the pacing feels dated you know and uh, this feels like a modern thriller yeah I, I, my wife had never seen it before and she was like sucked in immediately and uh like I said, I, I kept on like after movie, kept on going like, man, I missed this from the book. I missed this part from the book. I wish I kept it from the book. But at the same time, I'm watching, going, no, they, Rob Reiner made the right choices to, to make the movie he wanted to make. Uh, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you want to go as far from <laughs> quality horror movies uh, that like have a legacy and won Oscars, I want to talk about Demon Wind for a second. Uh, Demon Wind is a 1990 low budget uh, Evil Dead ripoff that is now streaming on Shutter, and. People are rediscovering it, and rightfully so, because it is one of the most insane movies I've ever seen. Uh, it is about a group of friends who travel to one friend's uh, old uh, country estate where his, grandma, where his grandparents died years and years ago. Discover it's cursed, there are demons, etc. But it's the kind of movie where two of his friends are both magicians, show up dressed like magicians, doing magic tricks. And then when the zombies and undead start attacking them, the magicians pull out shotguns and pistols... And start using karate moves to kick demons' heads off. And the movie does not think this is weird, does not pause and say, oh, this is strange, or that's unique. It is, this is just a thing that happens. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The movie goes in directions that had me just screaming at the TV, what, 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 over and over and over again. I could not believe what I was seeing. And I don't want to say too much, because if you have Shudder, and you should have Shudder if you're a horror fan, it's $5 a month, you can get it through Amazon Prime. You should go stream this thing immediately. Uh, I, I've actually asked um, one of our freelancers, a, a horror, horror expert, Matt Donato, who's one, one of the best writers and analysts of like truly bonkers, crazy horror movies. I, I said, you're going to write about this. And so he's doing a full analysis for us as one of the most insane movies that like has, has vanished for years and is now suddenly available for everyone to watch. And man, if, if you like crazy things, you have to see this. That's Demon Wind. You're you're finally gonna get me to subscribe to Shutter, <laughs> uh, Jacob. Uh, you need to, Peter. It's a, it's a great bargain. So I rewatched uh, Game Night with some friends who hadn't seen it yet. Uh, I was the only one who caught it in theaters, and I was so happy that I did. And I was so excited to rewatch it. And it's just, I can't recommend enough going out of your way to watch this movie. It's it's so funny. I think it's it's one of the best studio comedies in in a long time. It. It goes in surprising directions. It's it's a stylish comedy uh, that it, you know isn't just you know plain you know point and shoot kind of thing. It's it's hilarious. There's some great twists and turns. Everyone's great in it. Uh, it's just make sure you go out of your way to see it. Cannot recommend it enough. Watch Game Night and uh, yeah, rewatching it was just just a real treat. And was that all that you were watching? It's not actually. Uh, over the past week. I finally took the time to work through the first season of AP Bio on NBC. It was one of the network's mid-season shows that started around February, I believe. And the season finale just recently ended at the beginning of May. So I finally took the time to see it because I kept hearing that it was good and it got renewed for a second season. So it gave me more incentive to finally sit down and watch it. So I did, and it is absolutely fantastic. I wasn't sure how the premise was going to sustain itself over the first season after the first couple episodes. But Glenn Howerton's awesome. The All the people who play the high schoolers are fantastic. Some of them are younger. Some of them are people who are in their early 20s who just look like they're younger. 
the the way they react to Glenn Howerton's character is great, especially some of just the nonverbal reaction shots. Uh, there's this one actor named Eddie Levy who is hilarious. Every time they cut to him, like the looks on his face and like the way he reacts to with his facial expressions and body language, cracked me up every time. Pat Oswalt's also in it as uh, the school principal. And it is just, it, it's such a funny show, and it's, you should definitely go out of your way to see it. All the episodes are on, on Hulu now if you want to watch it. Um, and I'm definitely excited to see uh, what they do with the second season. What kind of show does it remind you of? Because I've seen the trailers and thought it looked a little generic. Is there any, like, touchstone uh, comparison point you can make? It's kind of like, it, it's almost like if you took Glenn Howerton's character in... Uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia and put him in community. Like that's the best way to describe it. Hmm. Um, there there's obviously it's only focused on one class. It's AP bio, but it's not, uh, it's, it's funny cause the pilot lays it out before you. It's like the, as Glenn Howard's character said, he's like, this is not going to be one of those scenarios where I, you know, end up teaching you a, uh, biology along the way by accident. This is not gonna be one of those scenarios where I learn something from you in the end and we all come out better people. He's like, this is, this is going to be nothing like that. And it really isn't. The whole show is about him using these high school kids, like trying to to try and get revenge on this colleague of his who is more successful than him, and he's just pissed off about it because he just recently lost his job as a Harvard philosophy professor. Hmm. Um, and so it's just like the 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 uh, premises of each episode are is really funny, and just the the supporting characters are great too. And it's um, so yeah, it's the, the the commercials that they've been playing definitely do make it look generic. Um, but I'm glad that I actually took the time to watch the show because it's it's really good. Okay, HT, uh, you you've been talking about watching Terrorist House uh, for some time on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, part two was just released, and that's yeah. what you've been watching. Yes, and I've been obsessing over it. I don't know if um, you aired the the sort of short conversation that I had with Dan Trachtenberg about where we both fanboyed and fangirled about Terrace House, but uh, I'll explain a little bit here. Uh, Terrace House is essentially a is a Japanese reality show that may in fact be the most kind-hearted and soothing reality show. Uh, it's a, basically a real-world sort of... Um, premise in which you have uh, three women and three men placed together in a house and the cameras just roll. But the difference is that there is no sort of talking heads camera. So you don't really know what's going on in their minds. And uh, there's no sort of stakes. Essentially, they can they can leave whenever they want. They can stay for as long as they want. There's no games or tournaments or anything like that. And uh, another difference is that there is a sort of panel of hosts and comedians who every 15, 20 minutes will appear on screen and start commenting on uh, what's going on as a sort of way to read into the situation since we don't have those talking heads. It's kind of the equivalent of what you have with Talking Dead, uh, the after show panels except placed inside the show itself uh and it's this really interesting sort of um genial voyeurism uh i think it's been referred to and it definitely feels like that because it the cameras roll and nothing really happens (laughs) it's it's just like the most hypnotic show to watch where nothing happens at all and um it's like the real world but without all the fake stuff and without yeah, exactly. uh, super obnoxious people. Yeah, and there's without, no height. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. yeah th- there's no heightened drama. The most drama there is is in um, 
I don't know, very passive aggressive moments in which maybe there is a roommate who's been sleeping out in the living room. So the whole house has a house meeting about why that's not cool. And uh, there is romance too. Like a lot of people come in to, with the express uh, um, sort of attitude of coming in to like meet people and because there's not a lot of ways to meet people in Japan. And um, there, but the romance is very low key. Like in the first season that was available on Netflix, they the main sort of people who are kind of interested in each other didn't hold hands until like eight episodes in. And it's been really exciting. <laughs> so um, the first season, um, this, this was airing uh, in on Fuji TV for a while before it got picked up by Netflix. And there have been three uh, seasons on Netflix so far. The first one was Boys and Girls in the City, which was just um, in Tokyo. And it's really cool because you get to see these people on their in their daily lives, going to their jobs. And you see them both inside the house and outside the house, too. Uh, and then the second one was Aloha State, which was kind of trash because it was set in Hawaii and it kind of had a lot of sort of half American, half Japanese people. And it felt a little bit more sort of American reality TV than anything. But the third season, which is currently airing on Netflix, uh, brings it back to Japan and brings it to sort of the rural community. So it brings it to this uh, area called Karizawa, which is this resort skiing town uh, in the mountains. And it's really gorgeous. Actually, half of the show is kind of just almost like a travelogue. You can see like the beautiful things and the beautiful scenery that you can see in Japan. And uh, also a lot of great food shots too it's a beautiful food porn show and um it's just this season has felt very a lot more intimate i feel but also uh very has tapped more into the drama of it all because the people who've been cast in this season have felt more along the lines of like characters that you would kind of find in a reality show except like a little bit more along the lines of a, a japanese drama or, or an anime it's cute actually because there's like a person who is a pro snowboarder and a person who's a pro hockey player and then a model and um a chef, an aspiring chef and a university student. And they all have these really uh, defined character types in a way. And there's this ongoing thread, a slow burn romance that has been both frustrating and the best thing I've ever seen in my life, uh, in which the uh, tomboy hockey player girl named Subasa is kind of being wooed by this, this hot model. And it's, it's, it's like a sports anime in a way like watching their slow burn romance for the past 16 episodes in which nothing has happened yet except they've gone on like gone to a foot bath together <laughs> is the cutest thing and the most frustrating thing and like I think the essence of Terrace House in a way I, I sorry I love it I've been like obsessing over it and at this point they've only aired uh the first 16 episodes and they're currently airing in Japan right now the only 16 are available in the U.S. And um, I've been so obsessed that I've been like on the Reddit threads all day and trying to uh, find a VPN so maybe I can like tap into the ja the, J the Japanese Netflix where the more recent episodes are, but I have had no luck. So instead, I've just been obsessing over the current episodes and rewatching them a few times. <laughs> They're really good. I, I recommend it highly if you are just kind of tired of high drama and want something to decompress and watch something that really soothes you and um, feels just like... A balm to your soul. I, I think you've sold me on giving this a revisit and checking this out. the The rural season sounds compelling, so it's something I I might like. Uh, ben, you've been watching a bunch of movies. Yes. Speaking of balms to your soul, I watched Paddington Two for the first time. Yeah. Uh, 
guys, this movie is amazing. I mean, I, I had seen all of film Twitter basically raving about it when it came out, but I had not seen the first movie, so I didn't catch this one in theaters, but I recently caught up with the first one uh, through the Netflix DVD plan. Uh, so I rented the disc and got that and watched and enjoyed the first movie. And the second one is even better. I mean, it still has a little bit of um, uh, some of the slapsticky goofiness that I think is like just you know, teetering on the edge of being a little too much. But I also understand that that's probably a big part of the appeal for the younger audience. But uh, but the rest of the movie, I mean, it's just like it's so good. It's so pure. And the the characters are all great. And the story is entertaining. And Hugh Grant, who plays the villain in this movie, is just he looks like he's having the best time ever. And uh, Brendan Gleeson plays a character named Knuckles McGinty. I mean, like, what more do you want in a movie? This is pretty amazing. Has anybody else seen Paddington 2? Hey, she, it sounds like you have. I have. I loved it. I think it might be one of my favorite movies of the year just because it's so it's so good and so lighthearted and beautiful and very well shot too like I remember someone pointed out that this is the best Wes Anderson movie of 2018 because it's shot (laughs) in that very sort of symmetrical very aesthetic very uh, sort of pastel style and uh, I think Hugh Grant really deserved that BAFTA nomination he's just giving it his all in this movie it's so good yeah, it's great. Great stuff. Um, I, I, real quickly, I don't want to take up too much time. The other two things I've been watching, uh, I caught up with Columbus, the 2017 movie that stars John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. It's directed by uh, Koganada. It's his directorial debut. He was a guy who made a lot of um, video essays before this. And I am still sort of grappling with what I think about this movie, but I, th- I think I'm probably going to come down on the side of it being like a pretty profound piece of filmmaking. It's, you know, speaking of symmetry and and things of that sort, this whole movie, like every shot is so uh, um, particularly and and very uh, specifically composed. And it, it the whole thing almost kind of reminds me of uh, video essays that talk about, you know, Kubrick and, and people like that who have, uh, are, whose styles are very symmetrical when it comes to, um, the you know, crafting the visuals of the frame. And uh, John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson are both really great in the film. Um, it's basically about a guy who comes back to this town where his estranged father is in a coma and he meets this young girl who is there and they basically just spend the whole movie like walking around and talking about the architecture of the town i think it's in columbus indiana and um i don't know has anybody else seen this film and i'm interested to i haven't read anything about it really other than just like i I know it came out i think it played at sundance last year and I, i saw some people talking about it then but have any of you seen it does anybody uh have a take about this movie I've seen it, and I agree with you. It actually is a movie that um, really sat with me after a while, and it, I beca- I came to love it more and more. And it actually rose to the top of my favorite movies of that year, of last year. And I think it's a really quiet movie, and it's something that feels sort of inconsequential, but it really taps into sort of a lot of frustrations, I guess, with small town living, and also that dealing with. Um, like fatherly legacy and the pressures of the parents and everything like that. Uh, and it's, I think it's a really beautiful film. It, it's just, um, it's underrated to be sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's very slow. So go into that, you know, if you haven't seen the film and you're interested, go in knowing that. Um, and I think, yeah, if you sort of like 
relish in the little moments of the movie, I think you'll probably come out of it uh, pretty pleased on the other end. And then lastly, I caught up with Hearts Beat Loud, which I know I think Chris talked about last week. Um, so we don't need to go into that too much. But I think this movie is like pretty good, like fine. Uh, it, it's the thing it captures really well is the creation of music. Um, especially in, in a modern setting in terms of like the uh, the physical act of, of composing and recording music like it's there's got they have a couple cool scenes about characters you know performing in microphones and like you see a lot of shots of uh, monitors of like the recording software going and stuff like that it just it has a, a sort of a homegrown feel to it and, and it almost it reminded me of Sing Street a little bit I prefer that movie to Hearts Be Loud but uh, in that same sort of like uh, energetic, like, uh, fun. It really is sort of just like a fun movie about the, about creation. And it also has this, uh, added layer of a relationship between a father and his daughter who's about to go off to school and they're the members of the band. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I prefer Sing Street. If you're looking for a like an indie drama about the creation of music, I would re- I would recommend that one over Hearts Beat Loud. But it's still pretty good and it has some solid performances, and uh, it's definitely worth a watch if you're you know if you're into that kind of thing. So that's what I've been checking out. Okay, I've been saying for so, quite some time that I, I wanted this show to be under a half an hour. <laughs> um, readers have written in for quite some time, being like, "Why? You know, we're enjoying it." So, uh, yesterday's episode was the longest, uh, slash film daily of all time. Uh, today's is go is going to go long. Uh, so I guess just deal with it. Uh, I- I'm just going to deal with it. Uh, but we're, we're going to, we're going to aim to make them half an hour. Maybe the water coolers will be an hour. Uh, yeah, let's move on to our next section, which is what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing things on both uh, digital and uh, physical platforms. Uh, digitally, I've been playing Dark Souls Remastered uh, on my PlayStation 4. For those of you who don't know Dark Souls, it's this 2011 game, originally released for uh, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, uh, by, developed by From Software and directed and created by uh, Hidetaka Miyazaki. This game has, uh, in the years since it has came out, Created its own entire subgenre of games called Souls like because it's such a specific style of game. It's very, very difficult and very, very punishing. Storytelling is intentionally obscured. You have to sort of search for lore and search for meaning. Famously, uh, Miyazaki talked, spoke about uh, growing up uh, impoverished in Japan and going to the library and reading English language novels while not knowing English very well and having to piece together the story based on the fragments he knew. And he wanted to translate that experience into playing a video game. So playing Dark Souls and playing its uh, spiritual uh, sequels and direct sequels is like playing a very difficult puzzle that is very unforgiving. It's a very challenging game by design. It demands that you get good at it, which is something that I I like games. They hold your hands. They come experience this narrative, come experience these characters, come come play through the story. Whereas Dark Souls says, nope, if you want to experience this, you got to work for it, which is something I didn't think I would enjoy until I did. Until I tried it, and I found that I actually find it really soothing. I find a game that um, confronts me and challenges me and forces me to actually understand why I'm playing poorly. I found it strangely relaxing and soothing. It's maybe a better video game player. But anyway, the remastered version—it's—it's uh, it's not like it's not a remake. It's not like a from the ground up remake. It looks like a game from 2011, uh, but they've uh, increased the frame rate, and now it runs at solid 60 frames per second. Uh, textures have been improved. Lighting has been improved. And if you've played, like, Dark Souls 3 or Bloodborne, which is my favorite game of this series, uh, then 
Uh, you've you've seen this before, but this game is still a classic. It's still really good. It, it's terrifying. It has great atmosphere. It's this medieval fantasy horror game that really asks you to make decisions with as much intelligent and grit as you can. Every corner you go around at is a challenge, and it's such such an experience. And if even if you're the kind of person who says I don't like games that are going to punish me uh, and like really make me think extremely difficult about how I'm playing and why I'm playing and how I approach situations, I'd say maybe try it anyway, because I did not think I would like it, and it's made me appreciate the entire genre of games I did not think I would. I know I'm the big gamer on Slash. Has anybody else played this, or has anybody else played games like this? Nope. nope. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, I know Peter will have something to add about this. I've been playing some board games recently, as I tend to do all the time. And I want to recommend two games that are completely different from one another. Uh, one of which I've reviewed for Slash Film at Star Wars Rebellion. Fantasy Fight Games is a big box two-player game where one player plays as the Rebellion, one player plays as the Galactic Empire. And you sort of uh, retell the original trilogy uh, in a sort of a sandbox mode where it's the kind of thing where Luke Skywalker may never join the Rebellion and maybe uh, Admiral Akbar is your main hero. And uh, on the Imperial side... If you find you'll find similar surprises, but it's this game where the the, the game system is incredibly complex. Uh, it's asymmetrical, where the uh, imperial players and the rebel players play differently from one another. You, like you, you have to learn two sets of rules to play both sides. And the basic gist is that the empire gets stronger and stronger and stronger, has overwhelming resources, tons of troops, can command the entire board, uh, and can just win almost every fight. But the uh, the rebels have to do one thing, and that is survive. If they survive long enough, uh, and they have lots of tricky ways to do so, they win the game. So the Imperial player has all of these forces and so much power, but it becomes like exercise in like trying to smash a fly with a sledgehammer. And it's just this amazing experience where you can take this game design and apply it to maybe Robin Hood, and the game design itself holds up. It is, it is a beautiful piece of game design. Uh, but it fits Star Wars so perfectly. Uh, I've never played a game that felt more like Star Wars, uh, even though the design itself is not inherent on being Star Wars. And as fun as it is, and as much fun as it is to um, work with those game mechanics, if you play with a Star Wars fan, you'll find so many fun things happening. Like, it's, it's the kind of game where just through game mechanics, not through, like, making bu- bullshit up, but through, like, things actually happening on the board through your decisions, Darth Vader abducted Mon Mothma, froze her in carbonite and dropped her in a starlock pit. That happened in a game I just played, and it was just an amazing thing that... <laughs> an amazing series of events that um, didn't feel like fan fiction. It felt like a retelling of Star Wars because we were actually making these strategic and, and tactical decisions. Uh, Peter, you played this, right? Yeah, it's actually one of my favorite games. Uh, it's not a game I get to play that often because it's... Uh, I know there's rule sets for more players, but it, it's traditionally a two-player game or two teams. Um and uh, I, I think one of the fun, the two funnest aspects of this game is what you're saying, uh, you know, retelling over the course of this game, you are telling your own Star Wars version of this original trilogy. And actually, they have a expansion that uh, puts in Rogue One uh, storylines and cards. So more than just the original trilogy. Um but also the fact that if you're the rebel player, the the you are trying to survive, but you also have to keep your rebel base hidden from the Empire. And there's you know tons of planets in the Star Wars galaxy that the Empire is you know infiltrating and sending uh uh, uh what do you call those uh, those um 
why am I blanking? The, the spy droids. The, uh, probe droids. Probe droids, yeah. Probe droids is the word. Uh, out to, to try to find your base. And it, it's kind of like this bluffing aspect of, like, you know, if you're the rebels, you got to – the ships that they that the Empire does know about, you you know, can't – do you put it around the planet that actually has your base or do you bluff and, you know, try to keep a section of the galaxy that isn't where your base is so that, uh, you know, you're not giving things away? It's, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of strategy, a lot of fun. Um. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend it. Although, uh, the rule set, as you suggested, since there's two sets of rules, I think the rules are kind of simple once you learn them. But uh, th- in the process of learning them, it it can be uh, a little bit complicated. Uh, it, it, it ha- was that all that you've been up to gaming wise? Well, since Star's Rebellion is a complex game, it costs uh, eighty dollars and um, requires a lot of time to learn. I want to recommend a game that's the exact opposite, and that is uh, Azul, which is has a theme that's not as exciting as Star Wars, which is you are literally creating mosaic tiles in the palace. You are you are creating uh, mosaic tile patterns for the king of Spain or, or to Portugal. I can't remember based on the rule book, but theme is not important. It's just it's this game where you're collecting tiles, trying to put them in the right order, trying to collect them in the right order. And trying to make sure your opponents don't get the tiles they want uh, and gain the tiles you want. And it's just this incredibly simple, very inexpensive game. Plays in about a half hour. And it's been a hit with everyone I've played it with. Uh, once you go over the fact that there's no story, which doesn't matter to a lot of people, uh, it's just this surprisingly cutthroat, but it's also surprisingly laid back and casual game of making sound strategic decisions and watching your options and trying to figure out uh, which choice do I make right now knowing I'll have to make another choice in five minutes. And it's, it's Azul, A-Z-U-L. And like I said, if you want something that's like relaxing, laid back, but also has an edge to it, like a game where you actually... I think a lot of those European design games are about non-competition, about you know doing your own thing, building your own engine, having fun in your own corner. Azul has that, um, has that solo thing where you have your own board and you are uh, doing your own thing. But everything you put on your board comes from a central pile where you're competing with other players. So it has that relaxation element, but also has the direct competition that I feel is missing from uh, some of these ga- some games like this. So uh, Azul and Star Wars Rebellion, depending on if you want something small and simple, something big and complex, I think they're both great games worth seeking out. So we've been talking about video games and board games, but Brad has been playing something different. Brad, what have you been playing? Yeah, I've just been playing a song, because it's a good song that just came out. Uh, Weezer just released a cover of... Toto's uh, famous song, Africa. Uh, they released it late last night, and it's online. You can stream it on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube and all that jazz. Uh, it's, it's a song that actually fans have wanted Weezer to cover for a while. Every now and then they, they do covers of, of other songs. Uh, and it's just, it's just great. It's just a cool cover, you know, with Weezer's signature, you know, uh, more chill rock style. And, yeah, you should go listen to it. It's, it's all over the Internet. Okay. We are now to our last section is what what you've been reading. Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I recently uh, paged through the the art of Solo, a Star Wars story. And I actually wrote a little piece about it uh, for the site. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those big coffee table art books, which I, I really love any book like that. Even if I don't like love the movie, I, I find these books fascinating. And uh, I won't go into this too much because, you know, like I said, I wrote, I wrote that piece. But the big takeaway from this book that I found is that uh, the the earlier versions of Solo, be it, you know, in development or perhaps the Lord of Miller one, it looked a lot 
more interesting and a lot more different and unique than, you know, the final film. You know, I, I like the final film. It's, it's entertaining, but you know, the art in this book makes it look like, uh, unlike any other star Wars film I've ever seen. So I, I kind of wish they had stuck with that, but, uh, I guess, you know, that's the way it is. Um, <laughs> and it, it's actually interesting in your piece, you note that, uh, they don't have any quotes from Lord Miller or Ron Howard, which is a big change for these books, which usually quote, uh, you know, the directors throughout. Yeah, that that really threw me off because you know I have the uh, the art of the Last Jedi book too, and Ryan Johnson is all over that book. I mean, he write he wrote an introduction, and you know it, it's clear that that film is a hundred percent his vision. Whereas this book, it doesn't mention Ron Howard or Lord and Miller. And my guess is, you know, an earlier version of this book had Lord and Miller all over it because it was technically their film. But then, obviously, after they got fired, they didn't want to have them all over the book and perhaps Ron Howard just didn't have enough time to weigh in. And, uh, you know, Ron Howard, you know, I like Ron Howard, but he's, especially on this, he's a director for hire. So I doubt he had a lot of input on, you know, that pre-production work. So, uh, it, it's weird, but I understand why neither of them are mentioned. And was that the only thing you've been reading? Uh, I also, uh, I, I, over Memorial Day weekend, I breezed through this book in one afternoon. It's it's very good. It's called You All Grow Up and Leave Me. It's a, it's like this combination of memoir and true crime by uh, Piper Weiss is the uh, is the author, and it's this true story of this. Um, in the '90s, there was this tennis coach, and he was he was a tennis coach to the rich and famous, and he only taught. Uh, girls, like teenage girls. So basically rich, affluent people in New York would send their daughters to, you know, learn tennis from him. And uh, everyone thought he was this nice, normal guy, but uh, he developed this plan where he bought a cabin in uh, the secret cabin and he basically outfitted it to be this torture chamber. And he had this plan to abduct one of his students and basically keep her prisoner there. And, you know, he, he failed in it and he, you know, he, he basically killed himself before, uh, after the plan failed, he, like, he killed himself, you know, and then they found all this stuff out. And the book is actually written by one of his other students, not the one he tried to abduct, but another student. And it's this really fascinating, twisted book because, uh, the author, you know, the thesis of the book is the, the author really liked this coach. And there's like this part of her mind that wonders why he chose this other girl instead of her. And so it's, it's really like strange, just really well-written, um, you know, blend of memoir and true crime. And like I said, I, I read it in one afternoon. It's, it's that addictive. So I, I highly recommend it. Jacob, what have you, what it, what have you been reading? Uh, I'm only about 150 pages into it. So I don't want to say too much, but I'm reading uh, Dave Itzkoff's Robin, his new uh, Robin Williams biography. And it, so far, it's wonderful. It's comprehensive. It goes from the very beginning of his life. And right now, I am in his Mork and Mindy years, uh, when, he, when he's become extremely famous for the first time. And it's what I want from a biography, especially an entertainment biography. It is uh, in awe of Ron Williams, but it's also like not afraid to be critical of him. It's, it's, it praises him. It damns him. It explores why he was special, why he was frustrating. And it's, it's, it's just been it's honest and well-researched. And I feel like... The book struggles to know who Robin Williams was because he was such an enigma to so many people. And the book turns into a strength. The book turn is revealing itself to be about who was this guy? Uh, why did he have these abilities and where did he come from and why did that matter? 
and we'll see if it grow, grows into a grander thesis or not. But right now, I feel like I'm getting to know Robin Williams while also understanding him even less at the same time. It's a fascinating combination, and it's it's a big book. It's 600 pages long, and I'm still making my way through it. Uh, but I highly recommend it if you want a good entertainment bio. HT, last time we talked to you, you, you mentioned that you were starting of Mice and Men, and you have now completed that. What did you think? Oh, did I say that I was starting it? Yeah. Oh, Oh, I don't even remember that. But yes, I finished reading it over the weekend. And um, I it's John Steinbeck's novella, one of his classics that I'm sure many of you read while you were uh, in, in high school English. I never got to read it, but uh, I've been trying to read more classics uh, to kind of scatter throughout my uh, readings of modern fiction and stuff like that. And um, I really enjoyed it. It's a really great book that's steeped in Depression era uh, the Depression era that it's set. And it's a good sort of morality tale about uh, two men who are displaced migrant ranch workers and trying to find work, and one of whom is mentally challenged and uh, dealing with the sort of trials that many people who are misunderstood are in that era. So it's it's really good. It's really touching. Um, I, I blazed through it when I was at the beach. And um I'm looking for any more book recs, by the way, because I'm going to be on a flight that's like 13 hours or so soon. So I, I would love if you guys have any book recommendations for me, classics or otherwise. Uh, I'm, I think I'm ready for a modern movie, a modern, modern book now. Uh, you should definitely read uh, the big picture we've discussed mm-hmm. on the uh, podcast before. Uh, ben Fritz's book about the state of the modern film industry, not only because mm. it's super entertaining and extremely um, fun to read. Uh, but also because as somebody who works in film journalism, you're going to find it fascinating and extremely useful. For some reason, I feel like you're assigning this to me, Jacob. This is homework. <laughs> a little bit. A smidge. A smidge. Yeah, and you should also check out, uh, I think in the 60s, ABC made a made-for-TV movie based on Of Mice and Men uh, starring George Siegel. And uh, I remember seeing it in, in school alongside reading this book. And I remember enjoying it. But, you know... Mm-hmm. That was me before I was being highly critical of films, so I, I, I'm not sure if it if it is good or not. Uh, but Ben, what have you been reading? Uh, I am currently reading Daphne du Maurier's *The House on the Strand*. So this is a book, uh, or Daphne du Maurier is the author who wrote uh, <gasps> books like *Rebecca* and uh, *My Cousin Rachel* and *Jamaica Inn* and *The Birds*, which was turned into a, a Hitchcock movie. I mean, *Rebecca* actually was as well. I think that was Hitchcock's first American movie, and he won an Oscar for Best Picture for that. Um, but uh, du Maurier, she's a British uh, author, and uh, *The House on the Strand* is one of her later works. It was published in 1969, and it's a really cool sci-fi book about this guy who had basically um he works with a professor who's invented this uh chemical that lets him uh time travel back to so the book is set in in 1969 and then it lets him this chemical lets the character time travel back to the 1300s in that same area where he lives in the english countryside and he is able to sort of peek in on the uh, historical figures that are wandering around that same area, but he can't influence any of the, the events there. But he's like actually walking around in the same space that his body in the present is walking around. And so if he takes this chemical and is transported back and he's like sitting in his uh, right outside of his garage, for example, and he wants to follow a character on horseback who 
is having a conversation with a knight or a friar or something like that, and he walks, you know, 40 feet away. Um, in the real world, he is actually walking 40 feet away, and then when he wakes up, that's where he finds himself. So he has to, like, sort of deal with the idea of, like, the physical manifestation of his of his body not, uh, you know, getting hit by a car on a street that isn't even there yet in the 1300s, and all these sort of... Um, uh, aspects that he has to take into consideration when he goes on these time traveling journeys. So uh, it's a really fascinating book so far. I'm, I still have like over a hundred pages to go before I'm done with it. But um, I really like her writing style. This is the first book that I've read of hers. But like I said, my wife is a big fan of, of her as an author and she's read uh, a bunch of Demaria novels. So um, you should read Rebecca. It's a really great uh, sort of subversive take on the Gothic novel. Yeah, I think that one actually is my wife's favorite or one of her favorite books of all time. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely, like I said, this is my first Dumarie book. And um, I was not convinced that I would like her writing style. But I, after reading some of most of The House on the Strand, I am definitely on board for what she has going on. So I'm probably going to start digging back through her uh, her back catalog. Uh, H.C., you should check it out if you liked Rebecca. Um, yeah, Rebecca was one of my favorite books growing up. And it's I have it still like dog-eared and it's like one of the books that's basically all torn up because I read it so much. So I should read more of her books, actually. Maybe I'll read that on the plane. Yeah, there you go. My go-to plane recommendation, HD, if you if you want something like a bit more, but you know, requires less effort, uh, Gillian, Gillian Flynn, all of her books are like are amazing plane reads. I've read Gone uh, Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but her, her first two are also like, just like read straight through plane reads if, if, you, if you want something that's disposable but extremely entertaining. Mm. Nice. All right. Yeah, I, I have not read anything recently that isn't a magic book, so I, I have nothing to, <laughs> to uh, recommend for you. But uh, that okay. brings, yeah, that brings us to the end of today's slash film daily. Uh, we're not going to go through where everybody's at because uh, we're already way, well over the time limit for the show. Uh, but you can find this podcast published week every weekday on all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slash film.com. Go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow with some movie news. <laughs>